In October of 2015, the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association convened a meeting of religious professionals of color in Chicago. The book that came out of that conference, Centering, reads like a conference report. There are the papers that were presented, and each pa paper has a well-reasoned, well-thought-out, complex response. But also interesting to me is that throughout this whole book to, that came out of this conference, there are side boxes of comments, things that folks attending the conference said in the midst of the discussion about what the future of Unitarian Universalist ministry could look like, that were remembered, they were recorded, and then eventually put into the book what follows is a series of those reflections spoken in the moment about what it means to be a leader of color in our movement. I'm thinking about the ways we carve out space to find ourselves in the language of Unitarian Universalism. I've been Unitarian Universalist for 41 years. I grew up Unitarian Universalist. That was not a question for me until I went into ministry. My colleagues were, without a doubt, the hardest part of the transition into ministry. One of the shocking experiences was colleagues explaining Unitarian Universalism to me and it being incompatible with the foundational Unitarian Universalism that I knew in my bones. Just like I had to carve out my racial and other identities from others who tried to stake a claim on them, I had to carve out my faith from people who presume they inherited universe, Unitarian Universalism and want to welcome me as a newcomer, the Reverend Mitra Rainima. Being in a Unitarian Universalist congregation as its minister means that for many people, no matter what I am inside, I'm passing. I'm passing as middle class. I'm passing as educated. I'm passing as one of them and giving them comfort that someone of color can be in their midst in a way that makes them comfortable. So I stand in the Labor Day service and say, my folks made cars in Detroit. I know what hard work is. That's who I am. I stand up after Ferguson and say, I lived in a city in the middle of a riot. My home was searched by the National Guard. At nine years old, I saw the biggest guns I have ever seen, and I am not comforted by security people at the airport. I do feel we have a disproportionate calling to push back against the way that people are putting us in a box and asking us to pass for what we are not and to be clear about the variety of experiences we have. So I do have to stand and say, I'm not speaking for all black people, for all people of color, but this is my experience. And you need to recognize that we have a variety of experiences that we hope you will welcome into the place, into this place. The Reverend Dr. Natalie Fenimore. You always talk about meeting people where they are. How about meeting them where we are? 
When is their ministry to ask people to meet me where I am as a person of color, to ask you to, ask you to see me for what I am and meet me there? The Reverend Adam Robersmith. I know the sadness of trying to find the good news for the congregation in our tradition, which I embrace, but which also troubles my spirit. There is an urgency for me in finding joy in this faith, and that core of sadness is a barrier. Reverend Bill Sinkford, former president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. I just have this thing in me that says, if what you need and want is not there, create it. Step out of the box. I grow tired of dealing with what white folks' assumptions are and how I need to transform the power. But sometimes it's like that hymn says, new occasions teach new duties. Time makes ancient truths uncouth. There comes a time when you've got to do something new when there are new people coming, someone has to walk with them. And I'm saying that I think we are coming into a time, and maybe we are in a time, that we need to catch that vision. I don't know what it is, but it's something stirring. The Reverend Susan Newman Moore. So this question of centering and by extension of decentering, is to me a question of trust. I am a person of unearned privilege. I've earned things as well, but I walk through the world with advantages that I did not choose, and yet I benefit from. There's a lot of misunderstanding and broken trust around race, particularly within Unitarian Universalism, particularly right now. Last year, uh, more than a year ago now, we did a teach-in that spent time talking about the history of Unitarian Universalism and its history with the issue of race in places where we've fallen short. And so we're not going to revisit that history right now, but I am going to make sure that that podcast is up and available on our website this afternoon. What is challenging to me, occasionally, is that narratives I hear from my colleagues of color describe a faith that I do not always understand, one that I haven't seen. It's as if we're looking at a statue you know, maybe it's this chalice, and I'm seeing it from this direction, and I'm hearing somebody describe seeing it from that direction, and I'm hearing a description of what's on this side, but I can't see it myself. And that's where this becomes about trust. Because here's what I trust. I, I trust that when folks say, this is the experience they have in Unitarian Universalism. When I hear Natalie Fenimore, who preached my ordination sermon, say this is the experience I have had in Unitarian Universalism, I trust that that is the, that is the experience that she has had. 
as hard as that can be to hear at times. And I trust I don't need to be the final say on anything. I know, I know that just because I'm not and, and don't need to be at the center of everything as a straight white minister. That doesn't mean I'm not going to work hard. Mostly I trust that we are big enough to hold a multitude of voices. We can talk about centering voices that have traditionally been on the margins, decentering voices that have traditionally been at the center, but my hope is that we are a big tent, so whether we are stepping back or stepping into the center, we're still under the canopy that is Unitarian Universalism. And this can be challenging stuff. And if you're struggling with it, if you've struggled with it in the last year, if you struggle with it going forward, please come talk to me. There are ways you can, you can always set up a time to sit down and chat. We can go into all the background of all of this or just process what this means in our faith right now because it's hard work. And it's hard work that I'll say, as, as a white person, it's hard work that, that white folks need to do with each other to get clear on, on how we interact with, with the issue of race and the challenge of our history. So come talk to me. And now we're going to do something different. Because the request from professionals of color as we uh, set up these services talking about race was actually to specifically not have a straight, white, young, male minister get up for 20 minutes and talk about race. <laughs> so we are not going to do that. I am going to get out of the way. Thoreau Farrar is the director of music at the First Unitarian in Portland. And he wrote this homily to be used in services specifically focused on centering the experiences of religious professionals of color in Unitarian Universalism. So we'll go ahead and start that now, and I'll get out of the way. When I was in middle school, I was taught that every person, to some extent, holds a set of prejudices that impact our perceptions of others. We were asked to think about what our prejudices might be and how they might inform our relationships and our movement through the world. I knew immediately that my bias was against wealthy people. I say was, but really it's a prejudice I cling to even today. As a private school teacher who became an arts administrator, who became an opera singer, who became a music director for choir and theater, and who found his way into a Unitarian Universalist context, I recognize that wealthy people have funded my entire adult existence. My career has taught me to curb my lack of enthusiasm for the rich in support of the greater goal of professional success. My prejudice against the wealthy stems in part from the fact that I've never been wealthy myself. Every person in my family has had to work extremely hard to earn and save every dollar they have ever had. 
And I'm certain that if I ever became wealthy, my feelings would likely shift. I'm a church musician for a living, however, so wealth is not a prospect I can expect to ever experience. <laughs> Beyond those reasons for this prejudice of mine, I'm also troubled by some of the ethics around wealth. There's a story in the Christian Bible that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's recorded in the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. It goes kind of like this. A young rich man approaches Jesus and asks what he can do to help bring about the beloved community. Jesus replies by pretty much telling the man to go do all the right things, treat people well, and spread love. The young man says that he's already doing all those things to Jesus, which he responds, then go sell all your stuff and give your money to those who have less of it. As the story goes, the rich man went away in deep despair. It does not tell us what decisions he made, but I'm willing to bet he held on to his wealth. This is the story that leads up to the famous passage that warns, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the wealthy to participate in activating the beloved community. In the innermost part of my being, I believe that it is unethical to be wealthy in a society where there is also poverty. My sensible self, however, recognizes that there is a lack of justice in that conclusion too. There's nothing wrong with being rich. And an argument can probably be made that there's nothing inherently wrong with not sharing one's wealth. Unless, of course, you're a Christian, in which case your faith demands it of you. No, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of money. The trouble comes in how we manage the power it gives us. The trouble comes in how we use that wealth and power through both action and inaction to stifle the lives of those who have none. By now, I'm sure you think I've forgotten that I'm offering these reflections in a service dedicated to examining institutional white supremacy. Here, try this. For decades, we have been preaching the message of how inequality and injustice are pervasive in our Unitarian Universalist systems and institutions. Every time there's a resurgence of energy from the well-meaning white liberals who comprise the bulk of this faith, they say, we get it now, we finally see it. What can we do to help? More often than not, those of us doing the preaching those of us willing to get caught up in the middle of this hopeless mess, steadfastly clinging to hope, respond with instructions, which books and articles to read, which classes, workshops, and rallies to attend, encouragement to recognize and own one's own privilege. We offer reminders that the beginning of dismantling the unfair systems of white supremacy is in learning to recognize the points of privilege in one's own life. All of that is true, but it's also weak. So well-meaning white liberals come back and say, great, we've been doing that and we've learned a whole lot, but we still feel like unintentional racists. What can we do? This is where we, those who bear the burden of teaching, too often respond with something like, well done, good and faithful social justice advocate. Go and tell everyone you know of what you've learned. So our well-intentioned siblings in faith do that and feel good about it. Yet racism persists, and a decade later, those same people are confused about what they missed the last time. Here's what we should be saying. Denounce all your privilege and give it to those with none. Talk about an action item. I guarantee that would get folks' attention. Sadly, it will likely also mean they will go away deep in despair, doing nothing at all. 
I believe, however, that we do not talk explicitly enough about the fact that every person's privilege is tied to our corrupted system of capitalism. This is true in our country, and it's also true in our Unitarian Universalist congregations. For a person to denounce their privilege, they would have to be willing to give up all that they have mythically come to believe they have earned. If we're serious about dismantling the idea that white people are better than others, it means white people have to stop accepting better salaries and benefits packages than their colleagues of color. It means preaching about living within your means instead of below them, to stop spending less money than one can afford to, because our money has an impact on others. It means preaching against unethical gentrification. It means white people finally believing they should not have everything they want just because they are able to access it through use of their inherited social capital. Look, as a black man, white people often frustrate me, but there is nothing inherently wrong with being white. And if you ask me, there's nothing inherently wrong with lacking racial diversity. That is, unless you're a universalist and your faith demands it of you. The problem is around the ethics of whiteness, how white people manage the power they have claimed. The trouble comes in how that privilege and power are used to stifle the lives of those who have none. This moment in our tradition calls for both introspection and a charge for bold commitment. We have practiced hope. We have practiced making promises. Now we must promise action. The following reading is the words of uh, Dr. Glenn Thomas Rideout, Director of Worship and Music at the First Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Ann Arbor. And they concerned the, the hymn, There Is More Love Somewhere, written by him. Last summer at General Assembly, I walked out of the sanctuary we had made from the, con con from the convention center space. As tired as I was, I returned more and more to my deeply introverted default of self, and I passed a woman who had to stop to talk with me. Many religious professionals who have led a morning worship service know this is where the work begins. She walked up to me and said, Dr. Rideout, because she had enough grace to remind me of my title, she gave me the opportunity to resume my church face and posture. She held my hands as if we'd known each other for the longest time. She looked into my eyes and she said, you know what, I always sing that song, there is more love right here. There is more love right here. I'm gonna keep on, cause I found it. There is more love right here. I don't understand why it is that we don't sing that here at GA. We've already found a community of love. And because she had enough compassion and grace to call me Dr. Rideout, she had given me enough time and opportunity to summon up a bit of stillness from the weary remnants of my churchman's posture. She looked into my eyes and spoke and sang to me with her own truth. She asked with genuine curiosity why it is that we don't all sing the words that she had come to know. 
I was compelled to respond to the woman I had just met with, thank you for trusting me with that question. And then I explained to her why I thought it was necessary, particularly with the music of people of color, that we enter and examine these songs with more curiosity than colonization. I thanked her and I explained that for those of us who live with the privilege of knowing love, it can be difficult to understand the perspective of one who lives without such a privilege. I explained that it can be difficult to understand the lived experience of those who have trouble finding the evidence of love in their immediate vicinity, in their church, in their neighborhood, in their city, in their nation, even in their planet. I thanked her and I explained that for some who don't share the privilege of perceiving love right here, moving toward that ideal of privilege had become a vital practice of black faith. I offered that if we, as a spiritual community of Unitarian Universalists populated by well-meaning people, are to mean anything to the lives and the deaths of people of color, we must begin by learning not squelching the forms of expression that arise from these living perspectives. And she said, thank you. I've never heard it expressed that way. I've never understood it that way. And I will never sing it that same way again. When we inhabit the music, the forms of expression of people who lived their lives along the margins of notice, we must notice that we have entered holy ground, a sacred space of learning, a sacred space of relationship. And now, please rise in body or spirit to sing hymn number 95, There Is More Love Somewhere.
Adrian Graham writes this about the shared symbol of Unitarian Universalism, the flaming chalice. We kindle a flame of power, illuminating the holy in each of our voices, in each of our faces. We recognize in the flame a passionate commitment to our shared faith. We are held and carried from day to day, week to week, in the shining of the light. This flame is mine as well as yours. We are brought together on this day, called to growth, to expansion within its glow. What does your heart know while beholding this holy fire? Earlier, this moment in our tradition calls for both introspection and a change for bold commitment. We have practiced hope. We have practiced making promises. Now we must promise action. There is not enough time in a single Sunday morning to talk about what that action might be. But there is time in years together as a church to talk about what that action might be, and we will. But for now... Let us close with the choir, with what we should be doing every day that we're here, drawing the circle wide.